So I know many of you are uh, in touch with your feelings. Got a lot of feelings and emotions around the room. And so uh, I, I thought I would set some scenarios. Uh, first slide here. And ask you in these uh, scenarios, Andrew, if you can throw up my first slide, that'd be awesome. In these scenarios, how do you feel? So I'm, I'm going to pose a few scenarios. I want to know how you feel. Uh, you're sleeping awesome. Okay, you have a great night of rest. Uh, no tossing and turning. Uh, you wake up in the morning just feeling awesome. I mean, you're ready to roll. Your phone is on the charger right on your nightstand. You grab your phone as is your rhythm, and you are awakened to a text that says, where are you? And in that moment, all of a sudden you realize that you were supposed to be at the restaurant a half an hour ago. And where are you was followed by three other texts. Did you forget? I'm here, still here. Right. So I just want to ask for all those who that it's happened to, uh, how do you feel in that moment, right? There, there's like this, this pit in your stomach, right? And some of you have amazingly gotten ready in like 35 seconds and still made it, right? Some of you are like, forget it, I'm just going. It's impressive. How do you feel when you uh, have just crammed, uh, as I did in college, you've crammed for that test, you're feeling awesome, uh, the the teacher even gave you the study guide, so there was, uh, you know, some helpful preparation. Uh, you're able to, to recite back all of the answers. And, uh, I mean, you're, you're feeling good, you're feeling fresh, you're feeling loose. Uh, you walk in, you even have gotten out your, like, your favorite test pen, okay? And the teacher puts the, uh, puts the test in front of you, and you're rolling, and you're rolling. And then all of a sudden, the 10-part question... You had spent about a half an hour that morning going over and over and over because it was worth the most points. You run completely blank. You're like, I, I have, no, like, what in the world? And you're like searching your mind and it is not there. Okay. Has that happened to some of you crammers before? Just by raise of hand, all right? Yeah, some of you today, well done. My question is, how did you feel? Last scenario that I want to pose to you, uh, you're around a group of friends and all of a sudden, they start talking about uh, someone's birthday. And they're talking about someone's birthday that's in that circle. And all of a sudden, you realize that yesterday was that person's birthday, and you completely forgot. Okay? Like, like you have no backing out at this point. All right? How do you feel? I, there's a, a good brother, a good friend of mine who's here tonight, and I forgot his birthday a few years ago. I guarantee you, I haven't forgotten since. Because, the, the, I mean, the pit in my stomach when I realized I had gone all 24 hours, right? And this dude is, like, like super close to me, and I just feel like a heel. It's like that, that pit in your stomach, right? And all day long, for each of those scenarios, uh, feeling the, the, the angst, uh, maybe even the guilt over those things. Uh, let me pose just one more scenario for you. You realize at the end of the day that you have gone all day without praising the Lord. You come to the end of the day and you're like, oh my goodness, I, how could I have forgotten? Uh, there was no praising of the Lord today. It was, it was as if he did nothing today. I want to propose to you that the majority of that feeling is way less than the first three scenarios. 
The moments when we forget to praise the Lord and realize it. I mean, we're so quick to pass it off like it's no big deal. But we forget someone's birthday. I mean, it's, it's ruining our day. You understand what I'm saying? You, you forget that 10-part question on the test, it's game over for you. So in light of that, I want to ask you a question. Next slide, look at this. Let's pose it this way. Why does our forgetfulness seem to impact us more when it involves human relationships? When we forget someone's birthday, when we forget, you know, something about a friendship, when we forget something about a family member, if I, today is my sister Janae's birthday, if I would have completely went all day with forgetting it, like, I would feel horrible, and yet... We can get to these places where maybe some of you are realizing it's been a while since you've just genuinely praised the Lord. And for whatever reason, there's like, no big deal, it's all good, like, grace is good, I guess. I am tired, tired of Christian dementia. Tired of the believer's forgetfulness in my life and yours. And so tonight, what I long for in each of us is that there is a powerful remembrance that begins to happen here tonight. Are you guys with me? Okay. We're going to study the first part of Joshua chapter 4. I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. We're going to walk through verse 1 to 10. We have just witnessed an unbelievable miracle. 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews are looking across the Jordan River. God commands some priests to pick up the Ark of the Covenant. Those priests do so, stand in the Jordan River, and then miles up, God stops up the river, dries it up, and now 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews are literally walking across what used to be maybe, maybe as much as a quarter to a half a mile wide river. And so this story now in chapter 4, verse 1, picks up where we left off. Look at this. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, which I am instantly, and you're, you can already see it's going to be a long night, I'm instantly intrigued and enthralled because I'm wondering, next slide, I'm wondering this, uh, next slide, now what? I'm warning, God's done a big thing, now what? Anyone who's ever been to a Christian camp, you know this feeling. One of the things I despised about preaching many Christian camps is I would often have uh, students come up to me at the end. All right, Mark, so <clears throat> we're on this mountaintop experience, and what do we do tomorrow when we go home? And you know that moment where you just, you want to take like a, a nice, like a, maybe a wiffle ball bat and just like, just do a, you know, just like a, a, a just a love tap to wake people up a little bit? Because I'm like, what do you mean? Listen, when you go home, it's the same God. When you go home, it's the same Lord, the same beautiful, powerful book. Like, what do you mean mountaintop experience? Like, like now what? I, I, I don't understand. And so I wonder that now for these Israelites. They've just seen a miracle. And I'm wondering, like I hope some of you are, okay, now, now what's going to happen? And it's especially pertinent for what's happened in their past. Can I show you? Check this out. Let's go back to Exodus. Look at this. Next slide. In Exodus chapter 14, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys, you guys remember the story? We talked about it last week. This is the first time the Israelites saw the Red Sea part. Okay? 
Look at uh, the middle of verse 30. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Everything seems awesome. They've just seen an unbelievable miracle. I mean, the Red Sea part at, at, the, at the move of a staff. I mean, this is crazy, crazy stuff. The scripture says they believed. They believed in Moses. And you know what happens in Exodus 15? They all sing. Uh, the, the subtitle is the song of Moses. They praise. They worship. And then the now what? Check this out. Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found what? No agua for the bilingual, verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, thank you, verse 24. And the people what? What's the word? Grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? You just saw the sea part. And you're already forgetting and already wondering, listen, Moses, what are we going to drink? I think I'd feel differently about the Israelites if I knew that this whole generation didn't die off because of their disobedience. I think I would feel differently about the passage if they came to Moses and were like, look, 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 Moses, we totally trust God here and we've seen amazing things and we're sure it's going to be all good the reality is we haven't drank any water yet, so can we right now pray together that the Lord would provide water? I would feel differently, wouldn't you? But instead, grumble. Moses like, it's getting, it's like it's getting dark in here, man. Like We don't know what's going to happen. Where are we going to drink water? Well, of course, right? The Israelites surely would have learned their lesson once God provided water, which he did. Nope. Next slide. Look at this in Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what's the word there? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now they've added Aaron to their entourage. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Are you kidding me? They've just seen the sea part and they're saying, Put us back in slavery in Egypt. They have so much forgetfulness. Oh, they were singing when it was convenient. They were praising the Lord when all was well. But the moment adversity comes, forgetfulness. The second, the second that they have an opportunity to forget, they do. And so I'm wondering, some 40 years later, Moses has died. You have a new leader in Joshua. Now what? For these people, what's going to happen? What's going to be their response. So verse 2 shows us the result. Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge Tonight, this is a crazy story, crazy piece of the story. We saw the 12 chosen in chapter 3. No explanation of why, now we see the explanation. I want to help us process this a little bit. Uh, Next slide. I want to ask what this evokes in you. If the Rams were 1 in 3, I feel like some of you would have cheered. 
right? Because, hey, they moved, but at least they're doing horrible, okay? Unfortunately, the Rams moved, and they're 3-1. and one. And so what happens, I think, in many of you is you're very angry, okay? How many of you guys, like, are just, just chapped at the Rams? Like, you want nothing to do with the Rams. You wish the Rams would burn. Okay. I saw Jared Corzine, Keith, all staff people, and Mike Malone. All right, good. Uh, the reason why we feel this way is, is because they're the St. Louis Rams. They, they, they represent us. They're, they're like a part of us. And so to see them move, it, it's a crazy reality. Let me ask this. What does this picture evoke in you, okay? What does that picture evoke in you? Listen, and for those of you that live in a cave, this is Lou Brock, man, who did play for the Cubs for a little bit, but this is Lou Brock. All right? Lou Brock. Listen, I've been to a Cardinal game before when Lou Brock comes on the field, and I mean, everybody everywhere is just like, I mean, it's just go time. People are falling down. Women are passing out. I mean, it's Lou Brock. Right. It's the power of representation because, like, Lou is, he's our man. Right. He's St. Louis's man. He, he represents the city. So where Lou goes, we go. Right? He even has the first name of the city in his name, which is all the more pertinent. Okay. Listen, it's, it's the power of representation. What we've already studied is there are how many tribes of Israel? How many? Twelve. In chapter 3, God tells Joshua, pick 12 men. Get 12 ready. Now we see the 12. And they will each be representing their tribe in this specific task. And the question is why? It's the power of representation. You see, 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews cannot properly participate in what the Lord's going to command Joshua to do. But he picks a representative from each tribe, and each of those tribal people are then saying, well, that's our guy right there. There he is. And so their connection with him all of a sudden makes buy-in for the entire body or the entire tribe. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. So put up verse 2 and 3 again if you can. Uh, Next slide. And I want to look at one other piece of this. So these 12 men are going to take stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. And look, they're going to bring them over and lay them where the Israelites are going to lodge. The question is where they're going to lodge. The Holiday Inn? Is there, you know, some sort of place just outside of Jericho that, you know, is like a, a camping site? Where they're going they're to lodge in Gilgal. Cue the map. I want to show you where it is. I've been using this image for a map. Uh, you guys remember Shatim? They came just before the Jordan coming up from the Salt Sea. You see Jericho in red. That's our aiming point. And you'll see Gilgal south of Jericho. That's where they're lodging. I need you to lodge this map in your mind, it's going to come to play here in a second. Verse 4. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. Can you imagine this moment right now? Sure you can. Anyone who's ever seen a football huddle, just imagine it. Plus one, you know? like He, he calls and appoints these guys. The choosing process would have been interesting. All right, we're going to take some stones out of the river. Let's see how this goes. You look dapper, pretty strong. 
Imagine one of these men and the feelings that must have been evoked in them. They know they're representing their tribe. And so my guess is there's this humility as these 12 stand around with Joshua at the helm, realizing that they represent something. It's the humility that I long for in us and the understanding that we represent a good, holy, and righteous God. He's called us ambassadors. The problem is we often see more Christian arrogance in the calling than Christian humility. But the power of representation says we, in Christ, represent Christ to the world. Every coworker, every neighbor, every friend, every family member. If we say we are with Christ, then we say we represent him. Are you with me? And the moment that that begins to humble us, like I have to imagine it humbled these 12, is the moment we start to take our representation seriously. I don't imagine that these 12 were sitting around, you know, um, joking around about the opportunity that was afforded them. I imagine them in a... And Joshua said to them, standing with these 12, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his what? Shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Some of you are picturing a stone the size of your fist, but I'm pretty sure that Joshua wouldn't have them put it on their shoulder if it was small. So quick math, says the stone has some substance, okay? If these men are going to carry from the riverbed stones and put them on their shoulder, my guess is it because it's because they needed their shoulder. Uh, have, have any of you guys ever put like a huge cement like bag over your shoulder because you're like trying to hold it with your hands and it's completely awkward? There's a reason for that, okay? Uh, when we go to Ecuador, I just got back yesterday from Ecuador and we, we get to do uh, some amazing work down there. I've, I've never done cement work in my life. But down there, man, I'm like, I'm putting bags of, you know, cement over my shoulder. I, you know, I, I crumble in tears afterwards, all right, because it hurts. Um, but that's what happens. Not just did they put the rock on their shoulder, cue the map, okay? Check this out. This is a bit zoomed out. Do you guys see the distance between Rio and Gilgal? Like, we have a few miles here. To be exact, eight miles. Uh, so, hey, boys, uh, here's the plan. You're going to take a large rock from the riverbed. You're going to put that on your shoulder, and then you're going to walk eight miles. Eight miles. Uh, so I wonder what the perception would have been from the 12. Uh, I fear that sometimes we think because the Lord has the letter L in his name, that he equates with laziness. But I want to make sure you understand what is not happening right now, but I believe often happens with us. Oh, sure, Lord. You want me to, to put a stone on my shoulder and walk eight miles? No problem. I'll grab a small stone and walk one mile. Is that good enough? God will compromise the call. 
You know, God, you'll kind of meet me in the middle because, because surely you wouldn't call me to do something hard. Surely you wouldn't call me to sacrifice. Uh, surely, Lord, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take my perception of, of all the things that you've called me to and then, you know, and, and then made it more difficult than it ought to be. Listen, listen, I'll go one mile. And we can, it'll be like a Christian relay. I'll go one mile, I'll hand the stone to someone else, everyone high fives, we feel the teamwork and the unity of the body of Christ. It's all good, God. I'm wondering if the majority of our obedience, that we would term obedience, is actually compromise. The Lord calls us to something specific, we lessen the call, we make it easier, because easy makes sense to us, we negate the hard work that the Lord has called us to do in representation of him, and instead, we draw up our own plan. Sure, Lord, no problem. I'll grab the stone. I want to just remind you that um, the Lord and lazy have zero connectivity. Zero. Is anyone else ready for followers of Christ to fully believe that they signed up to die? That the calling is sacrifice from the very get-go. That's what I love about Austin. Like in talking to him, this brother understands. Because he says in the back, he said, out of his mouth, I long to see the old man dead and the new man come alive. Those were his words. He said, the old life is done. Listen, I think that some of you believe that following God does not involve obedience, even obedience to death. But my friends, let me again remind all of us, including myself, we have signed up in Christ to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Eight miles, stones on our shoulder, whatever it may be in these 12, it seems like do it. But the result is seen in verse 6. The reason, verse 6 is this, that there may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a what? A memorial forever. When we uh, planted Matthias, I got to preach through uh, Genesis. Uh, we didn't think it all through uh, when we started there. We were young. I was 25 at the time, preaching through Genesis. I didn't realize that rape, incest, and murder were in the first six chapters. So you're planting a church. You got to deal with rape, incest, and murder right away. It was tough. It was tough. Okay? Okay? But what happened is eventually we got to Genesis 12. And there's something interesting that happens in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram that I would like to share with you now, if you don't mind, and even if you do, check this out in Genesis 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he, what's the word? Built there an altar to the Lord. I mean, this dude, pagan man, pagan land, pagan family, God is calling out to him, and Abraham is already building, erecting like forming altars. So he built an altar to the Lord there who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country. See, he moves on the east of the Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he what? What? What did he do? He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going on toward Negev. Now, why? Why does Abram do this? 
why would now God call some memorial to be built? And more specifically, next slide, look at this. Why have 12 men carry 12 stones eight miles on their shoulder? Why? Next slide. Remembering what God has done is worth the effort. I am so burdened by this truth because I believe many of our lives are very distant from this truth. Remembering what God has done is worth the effort. The chance to build a memorial so that like Abram did when he came back through Shechem, he remembered what God had done. And so now this memorial that these 12 would carry rocks on their shoulders for eight miles and build something so that all of Israel could see. It was effort. Think about the sweat. Think about the backs of these men carrying these rocks. Just imagine, I mean, listen, I get tired, you know, carrying this top rock like 50 feet. Imagine carrying that rock eight miles, and just so we're all on the same page. Listen, the climate isn't Seattle, okay? It's not like 50 degrees and awesome, okay? It's slight rain in Seattle. Anyway, you get my point. It's hot. Remembering what God has done is worth the effort. But can I ask you, is it to you? Is it worth the effort? Or at the end of the day? Everything else got priority, remembering what God has done. No need. I'll wake up tomorrow, we'll do the same thing again. Now, I want to show you a really powerful piece of the verse. Next slide. But this may be a sign among you, remember verse 6, when you're what? Hold on, hold on. When you're what? Your children. You guys all know children. Are we together? Kids? Niños? Niños? Okay. Sorry, I'm back from Ecuador, still talking Spanish. I don't talk Spanish there, so I don't know why I'm talking it here. Anyway, all right? Anyway. I'm, in, I'm impacted by the fact that the children are going to be impacted by this. They're going to be the ones asking. So I think about all the parents in the room. I think about all the ones that hold precious children in your hands. All the ones that parent in this room that think it's too late because your kids are out of the house. All the parents that have been taking, rearing your children for granted. That the kids of the nation of Israel would walk by the memorial and say, Mom and Dad, tell me what happened. And you see the specific question, what do these stones what? Mean to what? You. Imagine a child asking a parent that question. What does this mean to you, mom and dad? Here's what I've realized. Kids ask questions based on the lifestyle of the parent. The questions that your kids are asking you is based largely on how you're living. If, they're all, if all they're doing is talking about work, if all they're doing is talking about sports, if all they're doing is talking about what you're eating in the next meal, where is the life? Imagine your kids coming up to you, seeing something that you've built around the house to remember what God has done. And they're like, Mom and Dad, like, 
Tell me what this means to you. This is like a weird, ornate piece of art in our living room. This didn't come from TJ Maxx. Like, what happened here? Right. I was noticing this uh, with our wedding album. Okay? Our wedding album was there, 2002. Woo! You know, we were... I mean, Heidi's always looked unbelievably fine, okay, if I may say. Uh, I looked better, okay, in, the, in 2002. And so I'm watching... Uh, I'm watching my son Dawson like flip through our wedding album a couple, a couple weeks ago. You only get a web, wedding album to remember. He's flipping through the pages. You know, he starts pointing out uh, our, our family members because, you know, it's from a long time ago. Hey, look, there's Aunt Bibi and there's Nene, you know. Where's, where's Uncle Nathan? He, he's not there yet, you know, and several questions, right. And then he finally asked me a question about you. He's like, man, Daddy, you know, you look skinny. Thank you, son, Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Right. But this wedding album is prompting questions. He's curious. He wants to know. It's why I feel like many of you parents feel like you're having to force the gospel down the heart and throat of your kids because they're not asking any questions. My question to you is why? So let me encourage you with a few things to that end. Next slide. Parents, it is worth the effort to, number one, set up rhythms of remembrance in the home. You celebrate birthdays, right? Fourth of July comes around, you go to fireworks, right? You eat dinner every night, generally, right? You have rhythms of remembrance. So so can I ask parents in the room, like where in the world has family worship gone? Uh, Where in the world is the power of the family sitting down? And even just asking, I prayed this for my family, and I wish I did it more. A couple days ago, I took the kids to school, and I prayed over them in the car. God, today, I pray that you'll open their eyes to the power of what you'll do. And I long to do that every day, and I fall short so much on this. And these three things have been unbelievably convicting to me. I'm asking you what I'm asking myself. How in the world could we have all these rhythms of remembrance, and then we get to the end of the day, no family worship? And we expect our kids to come up with questions about the gospel when we're not taking them there in love and in grace. Do your kids know that every single night or every single point in this day or every single uh, situation, that, hey, man, it's it's time. We're going to read the word together. We're going to pray together. And it's not just a meal time. Dad and mom are going to ask us questions. We're going to share in a non-legalistic, powerful conversation about the scripture. Listen, I know it's frustrating, right? Because you're sitting down and your ages of your kids are very spread. Okay, and so like from us, you know, Avery's understanding this passage and Maddox is overplaying the we. You know, it's frustrating. Because you're wanting your kids just to fully abandon their lives to Christ. You're wanting just to come down and say, all right, kids, we're going to do family worship. And they all just fall on their face in worship. That's what you want, right? That's what I want. I picture it in my mind every day. I come down the stairs. I just have the Bible in my hand. And my kids are like, yes, it's go time, the scripture. But sometimes I come down with the Bible. Where's my snack? You know? I, I'm going to give you a snack, son. You know? Right? 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 Listen, parents. It is worth the intentionality. It is worth the intentionality to set up rhythms of remembrance. I was thinking about this for Heidi and I. How much time we spend 
planning all kinds of things and how little we get the joy of being a team and planning our family worship for our kids. I mean, we'll plan for days for time, you know, the, we're going to do this trip or, or, or extend this thing. But I can't remember the last time I texted Heidi or I called and I was just like, hey, listen, let's be thinking all day tonight of how we can plan and prepare for family worship. Which gets us to uh, number two. Look at this. Parents, it's worth the effort to do this. Get creative with your children and how you express what God has done and is doing. Again, I'm, I'm picturing in your homes this picture on the wall that has a date on it or that you artistically drew or that your kids were able to be a part of. And the whole activity of that family craft was to remember that just today, God did a miracle in Kim Brown's life. Right, my brother? Did a miracle in Kim Brown's life. So what if in the Brown family, Don and Kim were able to do something creatively with their children so that every time they walked past the living room, they could turn and see on the wall or look at the coffee table and instantly remember that God did a miracle. The doctor said today, there's no way there's no bleeding inside. It was just there. And yet he said, it's a mystery. It's unexplainable. And Don says, oh, I, I'll see your mystery. I'll see your mystery. Right. Parents, get creative. Again, I, like, Heidi and I spend so much time on so many other things. And I know some of you are like, but I have a 22-year-old kid. Like, my kids are gone out of the house. Listen, it's never too late. Some of you that got 30-year-old kids, 35-year-old kids, what would it look like to call them home one night? And instead of just eating dinner, you all sat down, and the two of you, maybe your husband, wife, maybe you, you got to remember something that God had done in your life, and you shared it again with all of your kids. Listen, I'm sorry that we didn't celebrate this 20 years ago, but I'm not going to miss the chance to praise God now. Or are we going to celebrate Thanksgiving? Oh, we'll get there, but we got some Thanksgiving to do first. Get creative. It's worth the effort. We want parenting to be easy, and we all know it's not. And so we think that we can, that we can meet a hard and difficult parenting with easy methods. Listen, my friends, parenting is tough. And we get the opportunity to put a ton of time and effort and investment into it. But the difficulty is number three. Parents, it's worth the effort to shape what is worth remembering. Hello, hello. What do your kids think drives the family? Based on your schedule, what do they think is in the driver's seat? Taking them to every activity possible? Hey, so tell me about your childhood. I, well, we, I was involved in a whole lot. I, uh, I, I, we would go here, rarely ate dinner at home. We were running around. Then I did this thing and that activity and 13, you know, sports over here. We are teaching our children what is worth remembering by how we live our lives. I, for one, am tired of the man dictating what our schedule should be. Anyone else? 
Here's what it looks like to rear kids in America. You get them involved in everything. You have minimal family time, and then they they graduate high school. Everyone high fives, and then they're gone. I don't want that. I want my kids to say, my parents took time and investment to care and shepherd my heart. They took time to grab my hands even though they were tired, instead of just tucking me in and praying, oh Lord, we thank you again, amen, good night, so that we can just get back downstairs. Parents, right now, it's time to believe again that it's worth the effort. And if you think that all of the time that you're investing in said sport, all the time that you're investing in this activity, isn't to be overpowered by the gospel, wake up! Think about how much time is invested in these things and how little in shepherding their house. Now, those are shepherding opportunities. My kids are in activities. They're shepherding moments. But the activities will not run the home. The Lord will. It's worth the effort. Twelve men, twelve stones, eight miles. Back-breaking work for the glory of God. Are we together? So parents right now, please take a second to not feel condemnation, but to feel hope over the grace that I am in desperate need of all my parental failures and the hope that tomorrow his mercies are new again. That your children would ask when they see this memorial, what has God done? Show us the power of what he's done. And so look at verse 8. I love this. This is awesome. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. Does anyone notice anything about that? Come on. What do you notice? The power of what? We've been talking about it tonight. The power of what? Representation. Look at how the author now pens this. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones. Who took up 12 stones? 12 people. But it said the nation of Israel. These 12 represent all of their tribes. People of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Uh, Listen, I'm not going to try to add to or take away, but I see no complaints. (laughs) Right? Uh, Joshua, like no one said, these were like 80 pounds, man. And hold on, where are we going? Uh, well, you can't see the destination yet. It's, it's, uh, it's yeah, start walking that way. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a minute. Right. You see no complaints? Sometimes our obedience is one-eighth, right? Hey, God, let's compromise. Other times, it's just grumbling the whole way. Sure, Lord, I'll go eight miles with a stone on my shoulder, and the entire time you're cussing the Lord. Are you serious? Why do I have to endure this? Are you kidding me, God? Like, what's the problem? Why would you call me to this? This person is way more equipped. They're way better apt to this. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Where's our water? Where's our food? Even though days earlier, he parted the sea. No complaints here. They did just as God had called. 12 men, 12 stones, Eight miles. 
Verse 9, and Joshua, a little bit confusing, set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. In the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. A lot of mixed uh, understanding of this verse. It's not important, really. Uh, many folks believe this is just repetition. Uh, I, for one, have trouble seeing it as repetition because it specifically says that they make uh, a memorial, seemingly a second memorial, at the feet of the priests. But either way, either way, uh, the focus and the intention is in the power of remembrance. Verse 10. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded, God, uh, commanded Joshua to tell the people. Don't you love that? Let me read it again. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people. Remember, the priests are holding the what? The ark of the covenant. They're standing there. Everyone's passing by. This is taking a while, 1.5 to 2.5 million. Don't you think you're a priest? You're starting to get antsy, maybe even a little tired. Remember the ark, 45 inches, 27 inches, 27 inches? Like, I would be getting a little bit tired. But they stay. Fully obedient. And I love how this ends. Commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And so they go and Gilgal make these stone memorials to the Lord. And makes a very clear point to you and I. Remembering what God has done is worth the effort. Listen, uh, for those of you that are covenant members today, you've gotten like 95 texts from me. An email or three. Okay. Why? It's worth the effort to show up here and worship the Lord with the body of Christ. Listen, you're never going to get in this, in this church, oh, everyone, come and mark the box so that you're an, an attender. Hey, way to go. You showed up, everyone. Hugs and high fives. No. But you know what? It's worth the effort to, in our weekly rhythms, come together to party. Not to check the box of attendance. Not so that people see you. But because when the body of Christ gets together... And it's time to remember what the Lord has done. You long to do what you've been doing all week by yourself. You long to praise the Lord with others. It's worth the effort. Is your family seeing that? Is your family see it's worth the effort? Or do 17 other things always come in play? Your kids will learn that. It's not worth the effort to get together with the body of Christ. We can have church in our home, but yet what we see in the, in the scripture is the body comes together. Lot family, it's worth the effort. Those of you guys know, we gather on Wednesday nights, on Sundays, 20 uh, lot family, small groups all over the city. It's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. Why? Because you get together with the body of Christ and start hearing what God is doing in the lives of others. And right now, we're learning how to worship and praise the Lord with no music. And what's happening in our lot families is people are just testifying to what God's doing. It's worth the effort. Is it messy? Sure. Is it difficult? Sure. Is the food sometimes bad? Yes, especially if you have a lot of college students. It's not going to be great. Okay. Not going to be great. Frozen pizza again and forks. Awesome. Okay. Right? It's worth the effort. 
So I want to get super practical. And you're like, uh, okay, I thought we were done. Please be done. Um, no. No, we're not done. And I know some of you right now are like, Mark, look, I can tell you're fired up about this. And, um, you know, you need to settle down. But I want to make sure you understand why my heart is so prompted and triggered is God is teaching me about what it means to praise him and I'm having to repent of a whole lot of things and everything that I'm sharing tonight is coming out of my own repentance. Preparing to praise today has been totally different than last Wednesday. Totally different. I've noticed that all week long. I've been in Ecuador, yes. But every single day, preparing to praise. So how can we together just take one step how can we just take one step? Next slide. Check this out. Hello. Hello. Cue the yellow. Therefore, what's the word? Mm-hmm. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let me sum that up. We don't have enough time to unconfuse that. It means the old life, okay? The flesh, okay? Verse 12. What's the first word? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having what? Having what? No hope and without God in the world. That was all of us pre-Christ. Right? You guys remember that? Remember what life was like with no hope? Remember what life was like to have zero source of joy? Remember that? Can I also cause you to remember something else? May we? Check this out. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been what? Have been what? Come on. Brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember that? So listen, what if, practically, what if all of us in our homes, those that are Christ followers, started with a memorial... Remembering our salvation. What if you did something, drew something, created something, sang something? There's a litany of ways to get in a rhythm of remembrance. But what if in your home, in your car, in a place that the family all passes by, each of you, husband, wife, or spouse, or college, whoever you are in here, you make something that remembers this. And then if you have kids, they come by and they're like, whoa, that, is that art, Dad? Uh, yeah, kind of. Right, because I'm not very artsy, but I'll give it a go. Dad, Dad like, what, what does this represent? Well, son, it, it represents that once I was lost and now I'm found. It represents that once I was far off, but now God has brought me near. It represents that I was so distanced from God in my sin, but he has been gracious. Son, that's what it represents. And you can picture that moment, right? So then from that moment, every time my son Dawson walks by that piece of art, which we're going to do this in my home, he walks by and says, man, that thing fired daddy up, right? When I asked daddy about that, whoo, and it was a reminder for him of what God had done. What if all of us? went home tonight, tomorrow, over the weekend, and we made something to remember our salvation. It could be anything. I'm telling you, it would be unbelievably powerful 
to remember to remember. But there's still one question. Next slide. Remember this? We forget a birthday, angst. We forget what we had studied, trembling. We forget a piece of our relational, ongoing journey, struggle. Why? Why doesn't this happen in our relationship with the Lord? I can't answer it any other way besides what is bluntly and boldly obvious and very difficult to both say and hear. It must be our care. Could there be any other answer? Well, no, Mark, I care more about the Lord than, than this relationship. Okay. Then we will sense and desire and know to remember to worship and to celebrate and to be in the presence of the Lord way more than we will any of these other relationships, right? Listen, when your wife asks you, hey, honey, do you care about me? And you say, of course I do, but all of your life says no. No, I don't listen to you. No, I don't care. No, I never bought you followers. No, I never wrote you a poem like I used to. How can she believe what you say? Of course I care, honey. And I feel like that's what we're doing with the Lord. Of, of course we care. Of course we're thankful for what you've done. Of course you've done a good, a good work in our life. But no angst. No longing to remember what he's done. No joy in celebrating the work of the Lord. Oh, when we forget about a birthday, it's game over, but we can get to day after day, no worship, no praise, and it doesn't even phase us. The amazing thing about a good God is grace. Listen, I have at times made a mockery of remembering what the Lord has done. I have at times been consumed by the approval of people. I have at times been desirous to make sure that these people were thought well of in my eyes. While all the while saying, Lord, you can have tomorrow. The problem was there were times where tomorrow never came. And you know the power of the gospel is the grace covers me. Not so that I can take advantage of it one more day, but so that right now I can wake up. Not so I can turn my back on the Lord tomorrow again and say, oh, your grace is good. But so that right now me and you can say, God, we desire rhythms of remembrance in our life, and it is worth the effort to praise you, isn't it? It's worth the effort. God, whatever you want, whatever you would call us to do, however you would call us to do it, it is worth dying to praise you. May the world look on us, the representers of God in this world, 
And may they say about us, those people will do anything to praise God. They will stop at nothing. They will leave and forget everything else just to praise the one who has saved them. Twelve men, twelve stones, eight miles, and now you and I. So I want to I want to remind us of something. Knowing that we would be forgetful what Jesus did is he gathered the boys in a room. Knowing that we would be forgetful What I want to do right now is as we share in the rhythm of remembrance that God gave us in his dinner, that in the rhythm and the pattern of the church, we would come together corporately to praise, and then we would break bread and hold up the cup to remember the gospel. We're going to share in this in a responsive reading. So I'm going to read the leader portion and all of us together as we remember what Christ has done We'll read the all portion. And he took bread. And when he had given it, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, come on, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We come to the table of remembrance tonight. You were worth the effort to save a bloodied Savior, flesh ripped open so that tonight you could remember what Christ has done. So all those in Christ, all those tonight who long to remember their salvation, all those tonight who long to be yet again bathed in grace for making the praise of Him a mockery, come to the table of grace to the table of love and share in this rhythm of remembrance as we together say his grace is enough